0: Hi, this is Iklim Impact. Welcome to our podcast where we explore climate change and our transition towards a more sustainable future. Today, we're diving into a crucial topic that's making headlines in Malaysia, the recent announcement by the Minister of Trade, Rafizi Ramli, on Malaysia's new energy policy, trade development. For those of you who are just tuning in, Malaysia is known for its vibrant economy and diverse energy resources, which I might add is on the cusp of an energy revolution. With a bold new direction set forth by the Malaysian government led by PMX Anwar Ibrahim, the country has stepped onto the world stage with an ambitious 70% renewable energy capacity by the year 2050. Our discussion today will explore the series of strategic changes planned by the Malaysian government, including enhancing their renewable energy infrastructure, regulating renewable energy exports, and its newly formed addiction to solar. We'll also delve into calls for revisiting existing policies and framework to create an efficient, sustainable energy mix that includes underutilized resources like biogas and biomass. Joining us today is Dr. Afik Ramat, an energy transition specialist who will help us unpack this policy announcement to better understand if this will help Malaysia emerge as a new leader in renewable energy. Welcome, Dr. Afik.
1: Hey, Ben. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, a quick quick correction. Uh, Rafizi is the Ministry of Economy. He's, a, he's under the EPU. Uh, but then the announcement was together with the NREC, uh, Nick Nazmi, who is uh, 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 the, the Environment, Environment and, and Climate Change. That's right. Yes, that's right.
0: Yeah. Thanks again, Doctor, for making me look bad on my own podcast. <laughs> so, yes. Um, Could you tell us more about this recent report from IRENA or the International Renewable Energy Agency uh, has indicated that Malaysia intends to create 50% of its energy from renewables. However, at the moment, only 5% is currently from renewables. So, as you might guess, getting there won't be easy. And the main hurdle of this, based on expert opinion, is the integration and flexibility of the power grid. You would say about 70% of investments is required would go into the grid infrastructure.
1: Not definitely. So thanks, Ben, for having me. Maybe maybe I'll just spend first one, two minutes just to introduce myself. So Ben and I, we go way back. Obviously, we, we, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, we grew up in the same... Uh, environmental uh, NGO uh incubator Jawa that uh made us uh I guess I guess have similar views in in life. I I I work for Shell now, and my role in my day job is the energy transition manager for Shell in Malaysia. Uh, but of course, today I'm talking on my own views and thoughts. Uh, I think it's interesting to first put things into perspective. If you remember the previous uh, environmental minister, that Tony Ibrahim Tuan Man, uh, was notorious to one time say that actually if Malaysia pulls out all the stops and goes to net zero, uh, it will probably change, push the needle for the world by 1% maybe uh, in, in terms of carbon reduction. But nevertheless, it's not just about trying to reduce carbon uh, abatement. There's also a lot of economical advantages of doing these things. Renewables, um, I think, or maybe the power sector uh, as a whole, uh, I like to see it akin to sort of like local languages or dialects where you learn things. Different regions, depending on how they are able to harness uh, or, or generate power would would need to rely on different technologies to do this. Some are more advantageous than others uh, and and therefore uh it, it becomes hence the reason why I use the word dialects now, because you 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 are uh, you have a locality of where the power is generated and how far it can go where it's consumed. Of course, then you have transmissions in between that will try to integrate things together. And you mentioned flexibility of the, 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 those uh, transmission grids. And that's key if you're thinking of a centralized system just like how we have today. You have one um, currently, the, the mainstay globally that, that sort of uh, controls the narrative which is in the oil and gas sector. And because they can travel very far, you know. Uh, natural gas and net, uh, or liquefied natural gas can travel across the the the, the ocean and, and and supply energy. Um, but if we do want to move to a net zero world and we do want to harness renewables, we need to go back to those local dialects, understand what our strengths are, and 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 harness those. So I think the recent announcement by Rafizi um, is sort of like a, an indicator to realize that actually uh, we do have neighbours who are more. Uh, less less advantage in the generation of renewables, but then more advantage in the economic sense that we can capitalize on that, and that's something that we I, I think Malaysia wants to gear towards. Um, but we have to we have to also read between the lines, and I think this is what you and I will will try to unpack Seventy percent by uh, by twenty fifty that's a tall order. Um, but then whether or not seventy percent can actually be exported, used by us, and there's a lot of uncertainties. Um, you you're right to point out that. The, the current uh, grid uh, is is not high on where the uh, renewables come from, and what are the local dialects that Malaysia can use, or even regionally. You know, we can split it even further to Peninsula and um and Sabah Sarawak, the island of Borneo, which in itself has has its own uh, differences and and challenges, lah.
0: So, I I think if you look at their recent statement, uh, from their press release they're looking at calls to essentially go up to 70%, which is 20% more than the determined targets for 2050. Is this something that they are overestimating? Or mm. do you think it's possible, especially with our addiction to solar and our bias to solar? Mm. Uh, mm. You know, A lot of our, our plans and our policies don't look at other renewables. Uh, sure. But currently, our biggest renewable source is hydro. Yeah. Uh, so, what do you think of this seventy percent target? You know, is it achievable? Uh, based on the indicators from this press release and other development plans, uh, especially yeah. when you look at the LSS.
1: No, I think I think uh, no, definitely. So, so since 2011, when Sustainable Energy Development Act, the SEDA fit in tariff system came on seat, uh, you you see a shift in wanting to grow, and solar is actually something. Phot- photovoltaic solar is, is actually one. Of the more, I want to use the word sexier uh, type uh, renewables that are out there, and and they do have challenges of their own. You are also right to say that hydro is is one of the bigger, uh, actually one of the, our main ones, and, and in fact, hydro comes with its own challenges. Um, Bakun, we all know uh, the, the the infamy behind that, and in fact, that there there is a very strong lobbying against uh, large hydro being categorized as renewable. Simply for the fact that it it, it does have other non so, re, so, so so technically you are right. It's it um hydropower is renewable, but large hydro, large-scale hydro has um, socioeconomic uh, impact on the displacement of people and the biodiversity. And that usually skews the narrative to say that, okay, maybe this is not something that we want. But if you put them as a whole and you look at it objectively, I think 70% by 2050 is not impossible. Uh, another thing for us to keep in mind is the intermittency of the types of uh, renewables that put, put hydro aside, nah. um, solar, wind. Um, usually when you talk about capacity, I usually take it with a grain of salt. Whenever people say 70% or, or, or rather they say 100 gigawatts so a certain number, that's a capacity versus actual use usually takes it's about 20% of it. So if, if someone says they installed a 100 megawatt uh, solar plant, then I'll say, okay, so you actually have a 20 megawatt use of it uh, because there's a lot of intermittency, right? When the sun don't shine, when the wind doesn't blow. So those are the challenges in the mix, and hence goes back to that flexibility question that you have. But you can see that in the announcement, they did they want to try to address this. And, and I think the minister quoted uh what was the number? I about 640 billion ringgit uh of total spent up to 2050 to address this. And the question is, while the target is in the uh, generation of electricity, renewable electricity, most of those investments would probably go into upgrading the grids, um, including storage, so the, the right batteries, the battery technology, um, and also in ensuring connectivity. So it's a it's a it's a monumental task. So you need to have the right incentives to do that. If you can't pay for it. And you can see that there are indicators of the incentives that they want to put in. So, for example, uh, I think part of it, they, they also said they want to accelerate the rooftop solar uh, installations for government buildings before the year end, and they injected 50 million ringgit. You can, you can say that's been that but then that's how you that's how you catalyze things, right? You say you make an announcement and you say, I'll be the first customer, come install on my rooftop solar 50 million. Um... And then I know the size of the price for the next two decades is about $600 billion. On top of that, they also, as I was alluding to just now, I think Singapore, there's, there's very strong indications that they do want to purchase. For a while, we had a ban for renewable energy export. And I, my personal view is I think the reason for that is because we were not able to quantify the value of renewables. But the moment you hear people knocking on your door asking for it, then you go like, oh, okay rather than banning it, let's let's see how how we can market this for a willing-by-willing sell. Although the announcement did say that they, there are rules and regulations to it which will be defined further. And those are probably the uh, uh, types of things that you want to keep in view like, for the next coming months to see how will you spend that $50 million, where will it go to, and um, secondly, how will the export rules apply. So you can imagine all the excess ele- renewable electricity, especially down south, right? in Johor, wow, they'll probably be gearing up already. It
0: looks like a good target for, for Singapore to purchase its uh, renewable energy. Um, yep. So at the moment, w- Malaysians are paying about, what, 30 cents to 40 uh, cents? And then with Singapore paying roughly about one US dollar, you know, for energy. Hmm. If we sell our RE, then what will be left for Malaysia?
1: Okay, not a good one. but But I think over there is probably where you see the opportunity. Number one is, this is where you are able to then differentiate between sources of of power or power generation and therefore put a premium on them. Um, I think Ben, you and I offline spoke about this idea of those Renewable Energy Certificates. So maybe just to to point it out here, but if I'm not mistaken, even with the ban in, in renewable export, so you're talking about actual physical, Sarawak continued on to sell rights, Renewable Energy Certificates to Singapore and and actually this type of practice is practiced outside as well with with corporations to to purchase renewable rights or or the green power or the green the rights of the green uh, production regardless of grid <laughs> so regardless of grid is definite definite and even so with political boundaries so it doesn't matter if the power is generated the other side of the globe, um, willing buyer willing seller they can they can sell it and this sort of practice I think Singapore has been doing, so that that then then that that then creates that, that idea that there is a premium in uh, renewables being purchased. So to me I I feel like these are signals to how you would then number one have differentiation between your products, and then through the premium that you are actually able to sell. Uh, should be able to demonstrate additionality that will then be used to then encourage further uh, investments in in renewable growth. Now, I want to come back to uh, you you asked that question, whether or not solar is the right answer, right? So, that's why I started off by saying, okay, solar is probably the more sexier one. Because if you go out there, people usually think of renewables as photovoltaic solar. They they look nice, they're, they're very clean. Uh, but then, in actuality, that they're, that, that they're usually not the case. Now, Ben, you and I also uh, we've we've done carbon credits, and we we had a few discussions previously on this as well. And you do see this sort of differentiation even within the renewables or or, or in the carbon credit space. You know, types of uh, green credits itself. Some people will 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 purchase eighty percent of their the the offset needs with the the bottom scrape cheap uh, carbon credits buy the next 20% with a premium one and then go out into the market and announce that oh yes, uh, we bought the top tier ones. So these sort of hedgings are, are things to look out for and be, to be careful about but most definitely I think uh, it is a signal to show that there is uh, an uh, an interest uh, for the further development or the further the, 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 there's a demand for for, for these sorts of renewables and and if if it's well regulated and well taken care of then the needs of the people generating itself um, will be taken care of and it's very clear here the the role of this today is being has to be taken care of by Nick Nazmi uh, and then our friend Rafizi as well to to make sure that uh, from an economic standpoint it's it's not something that we are selling off uh, for the future I, I think there's plenty of surplus or, or maybe there would be an induced demand to chase for the Singapore uh, uh, buyers um, that would then spur the need for us to generate further. Whether or not it will end up with us being the losers selling off to Singapore, I don't know. Uh, but it's definitely one of those free market type models that, that you you just put it out there and see what happens.
0: Yeah, I think also with you know, a cross-border electricity grid, that would be something that we can look forward to. But moving back to something more locally, and uh, when you're talking about that $50 million injection into solar mm. rooftop solar for, for government buildings, they've also announced that they're looking at net metering system. Mm. Why, what do you think of that, the introduction of this? Is it a good signal for the industry to show that Malaysia is transitioning and, and we have aims and goals that we want to meet?
1: Yeah, uh, no, no, definitely. I I, I wouldn't call this the first step. I call it the second step. In fact, first step was your feed in tariff uh, type model to generate, uh, to have any a uh, bank of renewables and then guaranteed sales to to the grid. Uh, net energy metering is step two where, where they are in different categories, right? For, for industry, for residential, and then for government buildings. Uh, and the idea here is they have a quota and they, they try to increase renewable supply and you don't have to worry about the storage because you put it in the grid. Of course, uh, the the way to manage this is to look at how the the selling of the surplus electricity and the and the consumption into the grid is differentiated. I think the first one, the first NEM that was introduced, the net energy metering that was introduced, was a lot more attractive, um, whereby it's a one to one scale of how much electricity you you sell back to the grid and you consume. Now, not so much, and and the quotas are are being taken up quite quite fast. I I I believe the third step I would imagine is something that you saw on the third May. Uh, announcement where they, they say that they're going to look into battery storage. Uh, again, quoting back your source of uh, Irina saying that th- this is indeed the the weakest uh, link, um, connectivity and, and uh, ability to store the energy um, and, and flexibility in the grid. If you are looking at a centralized system still, I think those are, those are your, your steps towards that. Uh, th- th- there are other initiatives as well that I'm familiar with. Uh, for example, Malaysia also announced the virtual power purchase agreement Uh, type model where where similar to a sort of large-scale renewable certifications, um, you can actually use virtual PPAs to to sell and buy um, power um, irrespective of how the grid loading looks like. Um, And that that should uh, increase the demand for renewable generation regardless of the grid limitation. and and these are your sort of accounting bypass methods that would that would help uh, induce uh, or accelerate uh, renewable demand for uh, so demand for renewables. Yeah, uh, NEM NEM has its weaknesses as well, um, and 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 I think Malaysia is is working towards trying to improve these these methods these incentives. But but for what it's worth, I think these are. Pat in the back, whereas a decade ago, we didn't have these things. Oh wait, 2011, okay, a bit more than than a decade ago, we didn't have
0: these things. So when we talk about our power mix generation, you know, the next big thing that people talk about is is hydrogen. You know, what is Malaysia doing on this front? Uh, Australia Mm. is a big player in hydrogen. And Mm. I think Malaysia wants to be a big player as well. But do you see the policies being created that would further hydrogen? or are we too absorbed in solar
1: yes i do hear a lot of interest from the Aust- uh, australian federal government as well as your states talking about uh, hydrogen incentives uh, and i think um, that there, there is a lot of buzz in the hydrogen world for malaysia the federal definitely through its new energy policy uh, national energy policy sorry between 2022 to 2040 addressed hydrogen as one of the one of the technologies that they want to Uh, accelerate or capitalise on. Um, There is an an accelerator type um, policy that is in the works according to to rumours which is the National Energy Transition Roadmap uh, which also again addresses hydrogen. Now, policies uh, as of now, um, nothing hard and fast except for the state of Sarawak who have been very, very progressive in wanting to capitalise on hydrogen. Uh, Very simple, I remember uh there was one time the ceo of uh the, the straw energy he just said look uh, the, the the island has uh, water the island has cheap electricity renewable electricity from hydro so we got the ingredients we can do it and they do they have an electrolyzer that they built what 5 years ago uh, a pilot uh, green green hydrogen producing uh, electrolyzer they, they they bought buses uh, they they have plans to build an lrt system made out of hydrogen and and they're rolling out hydrogen refueling for mobility, hydrogen for mobility. So I think um, that kind of, in a way, shows that where there's a, uh, where, this, where the federal doesn't really move forward, the state will just push on ahead. And when the ingredients are there, as, as the CEO mentioned, they'll go ahead anyway. Green hydrogen is definitely an interesting um, in between. That so that. So hydrogen is not naturally occurring, you need to do something to create it and and it costs money. So green hydrogen using electrolysis, um, I can say easily two-thirds of the cost of producing uh, hydrogen would be the electricity itself. So I wouldn't put hydrogen and solar next to each other, but rather in the same value chain system, whereby you would say, okay, what is my surplus energy, how much uh, surplus renewable energy, Uh, is it solar is it hydro how much does it cost per kilowatt and and how 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 can i use that to convert it into green hydrogen which would then become a a molecule energy source similar to your natural gas or hydrocarbons of today to then be transported and moved so it's no longer a local dialect it's a way for you to move a bit further than that uh, if you transport it uh, as a hydrogen source
0: so when you talk about hydrogen, so at the moment, hydrogen is more of a energy storage system. Is Sarawak moving in the direction where they've already implemented these policies? And if the federal government doesn't come up with a hydrogen policy or guideline or, or a nationwide push for hydrogen, would that leave Sarawak uh, lagging behind when they transition to uh, solar or any other renewable energy programs? Or will that put Sarawak ahead because they've already have a really developed source of storage, uh, battery in hydrogen?
1: Yeah. So uh, I I am in the camp of the latter. Uh, reason being is because uh, these things are technologically new and requires years of advanced. Uh, R and D or testing, or, and and while the federal is trying to understand how to, to capitalize on this, the Sarawakians are already ahead in in my view in trying to establish the commercial constructs and the uh, trade routes and and the, where the customers may be and so on and so forth. And I think um, when the policy comes into play, they're up there. They're already ready, and they can they can just uh, move move forward. The reason I say this is because hydrogen. While, let's just put it this way, 85% or 90% of hydrogen today are being used as feedstock, as energy source. Well, mostly as feedstocks to petrochemicals or what have you, raw materials. But they they are produced uh, using steam methane reforming, so grey hydrogen. So you use natural gas to produce hydrogen. What you're doing now is you're trying to figure out how to, um, number one, produce it in a cleaner manner. So you have your green hydrogens, your blue hydrogen. So you work on that. You you invest in trying to build that. And at the same time, you understand what the future value chains might look like because your customers of today will buy hydrogen because they want to use it as their feedstock to, to build X and Y uh, petrochemical products. But then the future, your future customers will still buy the same hydrogen, so the same H2 molecules, but then they will use it to as, as premium products, as premium green products of their existing products. So that's a differentiator. Or as an energy source, just like how we talked about it. So those things are more technocratic in nature. You know what I mean? So the policies are not uh, as nuanced as... Uh, so the geopolitics should not be a, a stronger play there in my mind. You know, They're, let's let's do the things that are more black and white that we can work on today, you know? Uh, how do I make green hydrogen cheaper and so on and so forth. And then then after that, we, we, we worry about how the diplomats will work it out or how the policymakers will work it out.
0: Let's move on to what businesses can do with the transition of, of renewable energy and how hmm. they can be ahead of the curve by integrating this into their business.
1: I, I really like this question because to me, usually, the first thing I say is let's educate ourselves on this matter. And it can be anything, you know. Because this is such a new, nascent space that the moment you pick up the literature before anyone else, you're already ahead of the curve. Um, we'll use e-mobility as an example. Uh, this this is one I, I, I really... Personally, like I've been driving an electric car for three years already, right? So I, when people start talking about oh electric cars are this and that, I'll go like yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been driving it for three years. I know already the range. You you read about range anxiety. I live range anxiety. I know I know what it's what it's like. So I think businesses, if you if you if you are if you want to take a gamble, you want to know take the right gambles. Start with the learnings. Start with the things that you know that you can pick up and learn fast and and be ahead of everyone else. Now, secondly, is obviously the the the, to, to, to know the surrounding, land, the lay of the land, how it's shifting. And, and, and this, these ones you can see uh, right, right, right in front with everyone else, right? So the announcements from the ministers are signals. I think behind the scenes, everyone knows that by the time the 3rd May announcement came about to say that Singapore will be willing to lift the ban for renewable export, a lot of businesses were who were already talking to potential buyers we're just waiting to sell the electrons already and they already thought about it. So we'll use that hydrogen question just five minutes ago as, as that example. So while you wait for the policies to come into play, work the connections, know how to, how to, how to enable these technologies, these new technologies to your advantage so that by the time uh, your, your, the, the, the home master says, okay, you can do it, we're there already. Because one of the things I think is interesting in this space is that Energy transition is, is is a force, you know. It's something that um, you can feel globally. People want to move towards. It's just that no one knows how to get there. So it's a very, very far-reaching North Star that everyone wants to gravitate towards but then is, is having difficulty navigating their way towards. But the good thing is that you know the direction and you just have to slowly make your way towards it. And these are probably for businesses to, to align themselves to know Educate yourself. Know what technologically technological enablers are there. Know your local dialect. So, what are the advantages for us? I mean, don't go installing uh, wind farms la. We don't got wind here. Okay, I'm talking about Malaysia context, right? Here is class four wind. So you got you got money. You go spend it on solar, and then will start complaining and say why just solar? There are other options as well. There's hydro, there's geothermal, um, there's biomass. So waste to energy is something that a lot of people are talking about as well. And and these are the, the, the types of new, not really new, actually, in fact, actually, it's quite proven as well, the, the technologies that pro- people want to probably understand and make, make use of. So that's in, in, in generating revenues or understanding what the b- new businesses look like. A step before that, everyone knows also of is obviously energy efficiency, you know, cutting down your costs, uh, knowing how to cut down your costs. Uh, improving your 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 value proposition by having the ability to market yourselves as as this I'm moving towards that North Star I'm moving two steps ahead of you I'm the thought leader I'm the market leader you know these are I, I think the, the the obvious moves So ways to do it now.
0: I really like that thought process in terms of companies and, and businesses moving in the right direction, making the right investments. I think that's important. So personally What technological advancements do you see that will play a significant role in accelerating the transition towards renewable energy? And this is like a tip for companies to get on the train.
1: Uh, No, no, definitely. If you asked me this two weeks ago, I probably had a different answer. But because of the announcement by by the government recently, I think battery is going to be the next hot thing. Uh, The reason being is because for a long time, um, battery technology is number one. Technological limitations is is a known is a known factor, but that was the case with solar five years ago as well, right? But the moment you see demand come up, then suddenly you you see the cost curve come down very fast, and batteries likewise. But now that 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 the government actually says that for in order for us to reach that seventy percent, we're going to have to have this much engagement. Uh, sorry, uh, this much investments, uh six hundred billion, and we recognize that on top of that we need to also have the investments in making sure that the infrastructure or, or the enablers are there. And what that means is battery. On a macro scale, I see that as the signal from for, for batteries. On the micro scale, I think I see I, I also see that battery technologies are, uh, are slowly being uh, dived into or trying to people are trying to understand. Is this that before this you're not allowed to uh, have your self-consumption? On a personal scale, I told you about the three year uh, uh, three year old EV that I, sorry EV that I've been driving for three years. It's not three years old, it's 10 years old. It's an old car, and I knew it was a gamble for me to purchase and, and, and use. And I also knew that the moment people talk about the state of health of the 10 year old uh, EV, once my car battery uh, doesn't have the same level of efficiency that is reliable for me to use it as a mobility, agent to move from a to b using x amount of energy i will my personal view is to cannibalize that battery and now that i'm allowed to i'm going to use it as my own home storage system so that that's the type of gamble that i would take for myself and i i see it very nicely aligned all the way up to the macro level and i think that that's probably one of the things we need to look into
0: so before we, we we end our session today i mean it's been a very interesting section what do you think um average Malaysian citizens can do uh, in this situation, especially, you know, talk about a cost of living crisis to further the shift towards renewables?
1: No, I uh, no, I think that's, that's, that's an interesting one. And maybe at the start of the podcast, I alluded to the fact that you've got your NREC, you've got your EPU, and you've got your MITI. These are three different ministries with very three, uh, with three different um, objectives, but we, we never live... Uh, in a bubble, and similarly with the energy. Uh, we, we, when it comes to energy, people usually address these things as the en- energy trilemma. See, you need to make sure that the, there's energy security for the pro- pro- uh, for, for nations to prosper. Um, there's affordability to ensure that you know it, 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 everyone has the right um, uh, opportunity to to grow through an abundance of energy. And then lastly is the sustainability of the energy. You need to make sure that the source of the energy that is being consumed or generated uh, comes from a source that would not be detriment to future generations and society. So when you asked me that question earlier on about what can businesses do, I think individuals as well, or, or society as a whole, we need to also understand this energy trilemma a bit better uh, and understand that it's not one or two, it's all three that you need to be able to answer if you want to be able to prosper in, in the world. Um, a lot of people are probably, uh, let's just start with Malaysia, not as well in tune with the need for us to get to net zero. They, uh, they, they're more worried about whether or not they have food to eat uh, today. And I think a lot of times people fail to realise that these questions or these challenges are, are, are quite interrelated. And if you are able to answer the question of affordability, but you can't answer the question of security, energy security and energy sustainability, then you're not answering the whole question. And and you can help with affordability today, but you can't help with affordability tomorrow. So I think that at the ground level, an education of the need or awareness of the need to understand the dimensions a lot better is very important on the policy level our politicians and the people who are who we have entrusted to come up with the right solutions also need to not be populist in nature and sacrifice the future generations just for the sake of a vote today or ride the ET bandwagon and just say everything is green but then realize that you you're not you're not talking to the right crowd because your renewable energy or your electric vehicle is just for the T twenties so, or you know, and and it doesn't speak to the people. So these are are, are serious, uh, interrelated uh, issues that, that that need to be seen holistically.
0: I think there's a an increased understanding of climate change, especially with your primary industries. When you talk about your your farming, and mm. fishing, I think you know in recent articles, newspapers as well. This you know the fishermen, the farmers, they all feel the impact of of climate change. Uh, I think at that level, they understand and they see the impacts of creating a sustainable future. And I think what you said is true. Um, politicians should and hopefully look at what benefits the nation in the long run rather than what will get a vote today. But I think uh, PMX, you know, when you talk about dilemma, now we have NREC under him, I mean, under his own party. And mm. then you have the economy under his party. Finance and... Prime Minister ministries under PKRI, so I think that's one of those things that they should look into pushing both locally and also at a global scale. Once again, thank you, Dr. Afik, for coming onto the podcast. Hey, <laughs> uh, hey Ben,
1: thanks a lot, Ben. I think this was a lot of fun, very informal as well. So I hope we we're, we're able to to probably see through things and find the gems, lah.